Good morning, everybody. Man, it is great to see you here at the Vista today. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve as one of our lead pastors. If you're brand new here, that we are especially glad that you join us. We hope that you feel loved, that you feel welcome, that you feel wanted. Um, over the last couple of months, we have been in a series called Long Live the Revolution, and that was a series where we walked through a book of the Bible known as the Acts of the Apostles, or Acts for short. And uh, if you've been at Vista for any uh, kind of length of time, then you know that we like to provide this balance in our teaching where we spend some time just walking through books of the Bible, like we did the book of Acts or like we did the life of David last semester. And then we like to spend some time on some just kind of topical issues. So like the series we did on women in scripture back in the summer, if you remember that one, She Speaks series. And then during special seasons, we like to just follow along with the church calendar to make sure that we're kind of walking in the stories that all Christians all over the world are walking in during seasons like Advent or seasons like Easter. And we find that that provides a really good balance and rhythm to our teaching. We hit everything we need to hit if we do that. And so seeing as how we just spent uh, the last couple of months walking through the book of Acts, uh, we are excited this morning to switch gears a little bit by rebooting a series we first did uh, about two, two and a half years ago, a series called Songs, Finding God in the Music. And y'all, I love this series. This is like my favorite series because I love music. Anybody else in the house today love music? It's just, oh. Music is the greatest. Uh, music is always on in the Fisher household. Uh, and I, I would like to think that perhaps my greatest parenting accomplishment is that when my little boys ask me to play music in the car, they don't ask for, you know, like Baby Shark or Elmo's song. We don't allow any of that stuff in the Fisher household. No, when my boys ask me to play music in the car, they'll say, Daddy, will you please put on John Mayer? Daddy, will you please put on you too? To which I say, train up a child in the way that he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Uh, my youngest son, Davis, he, he's a very musical fellow, as you can see from this little, this little clip that we have. We couldn't figure out for the longest why he would put in my wife's stethoscope when he would play his guitar. Like, what are you, a doctor slash musician? We figured out they're supposed to be his in-ear monitors, y'all. Oh, this is just the cutest. He's a Vista kid. You know, he's grown up around Vista. Uh, and so maybe, you know, maybe your go-to isn't John Mayer or, or you two. There are people in the back who would love to pray for you, but um, maybe that's not your go-to. Maybe for you, it's, you know, like George Strait. We probably got some George Strait fans in the house. Or maybe it's uh, Kendrick Lamar or Adele or Beyonce because we like all different kinds of music, but one of the things we all have in common is that we all like music. In fact, archaeologists tell us that from the beginning of human history, you know, our ancient ancestors, they were taking like sticks and stones and strings and turning them into tools that made sounds and songs and symphonies. It's like we can't help ourselves. It's like we were made to make music. But why is that? Well, here's my, here's my working theory. I think that songs say things that can't be said any other way. Okay, so, so for example, uh, when you're really, really mad at your parents, any of you been mad at your parents before? It's just somebody like, yeah. If you're really, really, really mad at your parents, it's not enough for you to just say, uh, mother, father, I would like to file a, a formal complaint against the parental philosophies undergirding this particular parental piece of legislation. Right? Have you ever done that? No, because it doesn't feel good. When you're mad at your parents, you know what you need to do. You need to go up in your room, pop in the earbuds, and sing. Can't nobody tell me nothing. Feels good. Oh, feels good. Or, or when you're heartbroken, you know? When you're heartbroken, it's not enough for you to just say, gee, 
golly, I sure do miss my ex. Said nobody with a broken heart in the history of the world. No, when you're heartbroken, what you need to do is jump in your car, crank up Adele, and sing hello from the other side. Now, you get the idea. When we feel something so deeply that it's not enough to just say it, you got to sing it. Because God put the music in us. From the beginning of human history, God put the music in us. And so that's what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks. We're going to pick a song. We're going to listen to it. We're going to listen to what it's saying, what it's asking, and then discuss how that harmonizes and or clashes with Christian faith. We're going to find God in the music. Sound good? Are you up for it? It's, it's going to be a good time, I'm telling you. And so uh, I'm super excited about our first song. As John mentioned, I was, I was finally rubbed into a country song. Uh, it was nominated for two Grammy Awards in 2017 and actually took home Grammy for Best Country Solo Performance in 2017. I don't bring you any weak stuff here, only the best. Uh, and so the first song in this year's song series is My Church by Miss Maren Morris. It's a fantastic song. I love this song. So I'm going to read you the lyrics. And then we'll, we'll listen to the song together. All right. She says, I've cussed on a Sunday. Me too. I've cheated and I've lied. I've fallen down from grace a few too many times. But I find holy redemption when I put this car in drive, roll the windows down, and turn up the dial. All right. Here's the chorus. Can I get a hallelujah? Can I get a hallelujah? hallelujah. Can I get an amen? amen? Feels like the Holy Ghost running through you when you play the highway FM. Now I find my soul revival singing every single verse. Yeah, I guess that's my church. All right, next verse. This is my favorite. This is fantastic, all right? Now when Hank brings the sermon and Cash leads the choir, it gets my cold, cold heart burning hotter than a ring of fire. Oh, so good. I hate country music, and that's just, that's so good. When this wonderful world gets heavy and I just need to find my escape, I just keep the wheels rolling, radio scrolling till my sins wash away. That's good. All right, so that's the song. Back to the course of that point. We're going to listen to it, then we'll talk about it. So y'all check it out. My church. Your faces, you're all smiling from ear to ear. Uh, I'm telling you, uh, next time you're having a bad day, right, because the, the kids or, or the job or adulting or whatever, just jump in the car, right, roll down your window, crank this song up, and I, I dare you to try to not smile, but it will be impossible. You will not be able to do it unless you do not literally have a soul inside you. Uh, the song has this, this playful irreverence, right? This like, forget all your, your rules and your formal religiosity. Just give me a good song and a good drive and revival is gonna break out in my car, right? Uh, Morris describes uh, kind of the, the inspiration for this song. She says she was driving down the Pacific Coast Highway. I don't know if you've ever driven down the Pacific Coast Highway. Not bad. Some of you California people know it's a great drive. And this great song came on just as the ocean was coming into view. And here's what she says. She says, I just remember seeing the ocean, having a good song on, and it was just the soundtrack for this cathartic moment in my life. And I remember thinking to myself, man, this, this right here, this is like church to me. And I know just what she's talking about, right? And you probably do too. This this desire to break free from all the rules and, you know, formal chores of uh, religiosity and find God beyond the bounds of formal religious institutionalism. And study after study has shown that this, this desire to break free from formal religion and the stuffiness of it, uh, it's not just something that you and I feel, it's something that everybody's feeling. It's this worldwide phenomenon because there appears to be a growing sense that religion, that formal religion, is an obstacle to authentic spirituality. 
For example, a recent Gallup poll found that the last 20 years have seen a 20% decrease in church membership. So over the last 20 years, church membership has dropped by 20%. And this drop, this enormous drop in church membership, it's not due to, you know, like a lot of Christians uh, moving and becoming atheists or something like that. Because 90% of Americans still believe in God or some kind of higher power. And so this enormous drop away from formal religious affiliation isn't really moved toward atheism so much as it has been a move toward spirituality. Okay, in other words, people are not abandoning the Christian religion for atheism. No. People are abandoning the Christian religion for spirituality. And this would explain why over a quarter of Americans at this point, 27% of Americans, identify as people who are spiritual but not religious. Okay, people who would say, I believe, like I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, sure, but I don't belong to any particular religious community or tradition. And so why do you think that is? And why are we all migrating away from religion and toward spirituality? Now, there are a number of different things that that we can mention, but two seem to really, really stand out, okay? Individualism and anti-institutionalism, okay? Individualism and anti-institutionalism causing us to migrate, And so as to individualism, you've all heard it said if you go to Vista like a billion times at this point, but the simple fact of the matter is we live in a culture that is becoming increasingly privatized, right? A culture wherein we are conditioned from very early on to cherish our personal freedom and autonomy as an absolute good. Right? And I'm about to sound really, really old here, but do you remember when, and that's how you know you sound old when you say stuff like this, but do you remember when uh, like the doorbell would ring unexpectedly and everybody in the house would get really, really happy because it meant that you had company? You know, you go, hey, everybody, the doorbell rang. Let's go see who it is. We're having company, and let's get out the good snacks that we keep there for company. And they come in, and you drink, and you just have a good time, and you spend like an hour talking to each other, and it's this great thing. And nowadays, right, nowadays, when the doorbell rings unexpectedly, what happens? Everyone's like, shh, get down. Everybody get down. You, in the back, down, down, down. Let's see who it is. Nobody move. We got company, right? It's, oh, my God, it's the neighbor's. You know, smoke grenade, everybody out the back, you know the plan. How dare the neighbors come over and try to talk to us, you know? It's ridiculous. Let me text first. (laughs) And so as people who have been conditioned, right, from day one to cherish our personal freedom and autonomy, it is inevitable that we will be drawn increasingly toward more personal and private forms of spirituality, And this was really on display in a recent poll that found 65% of Protestant Christians, that's us, 65% of Protestant Christians think they can follow God without other Christians. And I hate to jump ahead, but no, you can't. (laughs) You are not allowed to believe that if you're a Christian. And so our hyper-individualistic conditioning is one reason we're migrating away from religion and towards spirituality. Uh, But then a second major factor is anti-institutionalism. Okay, anti-institutionalism. All that means is we live in a culture where there's a deep and growing skepticism toward all forms of authority and hierarchy. Okay, so for example, 
Gallup has done this poll for the last 50 years, going back to the 70s, and it measures public confidence in America's biggest institutions. So that's stuff like the church, Supreme Court, newspapers, public school, uh, stuff like that. And it's found that current American public confidence is at an all-time low in our public institutions, right? You see it on fire. Uh, and then the church in particular, this study has found that confidence in the church has been cut in half over the last 50 years. All right, so 50 years ago, you know, like 70% of people trusted the church, and now only 35 or so percent of people have confidence in the church. Right? And some of that's our fault, you know, because we can suck sometimes. You know, the church has been rocked by numerous sexual and financial scandals, or be it the tendency of the church to be co-opted by various political constituencies on both the left and the right. But while those things have contributed to this anti-institutionalist trend, the biggest reason for it is that, quite simply, we don't want people telling us what to do. We just don't, right? And so, we like our freedom, and we want to do our own thing, which means we struggle submitting to the traditions and disciplines and hierarchies, and we find them very, very irritating because can't nobody tell me nothing, And so here's the deal. I've kind of gone over the top. I know I have. I showed you like 30 graphs already, and we're like 10 minutes into the sermon. Um, I've tried to go over the top here in helping us understand just how pervasive this worldwide move away from religion and towards spirituality is. And I've gone over the top in the hopes that it'll help us understand that when we feel that tug, okay, away from religion and towards spirituality, When you feel that tug away from the disciplines of religion and towards spontaneous revivals with me, myself, and I while driving down the Pacific Coast Highway and listening to a great song, okay? When you feel that tug, you're not having some kind of like spiritual awakening. You're just being swept along by a cultural phenomenon that everybody's being swept along by, right? You're not having some divine epiphany. No, you're just really submitting to the tug of culture. That's all that's happening. Because, and this is really, really important, and it's going to sound a little abrasive, but, but hang with me, okay, and let me explain myself. While religion without spirituality is dead, spirituality without religion is dumb, okay? Spirituality without, religion without spirituality, it is dead. You've experienced that, but I'm telling you, uh, uh, spirituality without religion is dumb, right? And let's unpack what that means. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 10. We'll have it up here on the screen. We also have some in the back. If you don't have a Bible, we'd be happy for you to just take that and keep it. Uh, Hebrews 10, we're going to read verses 19 through 25. Writer says, Therefore, brethren, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. A lot of metaphorical stuff going on here. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Right? Focus in here on verse 24, 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. 
So what we have here in Hebrews 10 is essentially one long sentence in the Greek. This really awful run-on sentence where the writer's laboriously explaining how Jesus is the new high priest who offers a better sacrifice so we can draw near to the throne of God with confidence. And in light of all that, there are a few things the writer says that we should do. Right? And the first thing that he tells us here in verses 24 through 25 is that we should learn how to provoke one another toward love and good deeds. And I love this word provoke. In Greek, it's the word paroxysmos. And it literally means like we should be pestering one another toward love and good deeds. Isn't that great? You gotta be pestering one another toward love and good deeds. And so you don't wanna do the bad kind of pestering. You don't wanna annoy people because you're needy or just a pain. But you do wanna do the good kind of pestering. And you know the good kind of pestering. You know, good pestering is asking your buddy how his marriage is going like while you're playing golf. And he's like, why do you have to talk to me about this now? <laughs> good pestering is inviting your coworker to go hang out with you and your friends after work because you know she struggles with loneliness. Good pestering is asking your neighbor to, to come to church and they can sit beside you and you'll save them a seat so they don't have the excuse of I don't know anybody. <laughs> and I just love that, right? We should be constantly on the giving and receiving end of a good kind of pestering. We're pushing one another toward more love, more generosity, more Christ-likeness. And so that's great. How does that happen? Well, in verse 25, the writer tells us how to do it by telling us how not to do it, right? And the writer says, hey, if you want to provoke one another toward love and good deeds, then you need to make sure you don't abandon the assembly as is the habit of some. And so apparently there there were some Christians in this context who had abandoned regular participation in the communal life of the church, and to be more specific, they had abandoned the regular Sunday assembly for worship. And y'all, we, we have to understand, in the first century world, uh, the public assembly for worship, it was like a six to eight hour long deal. Some of y'all get antsy when we're like an hour in. You're like, hey, boys, Packers, it's coming up. <laughs> let's, let's get this thing wrapped up. No more verses, Jordan, Austin, please. We, we get it. Um, and in the, early, uh, in the early world, man, this was this incredibly comprehensive thing. And so the writer's saying, look, you can't follow Jesus on your own, Protestant Christians, 65% of you. You can't do it. You need the regular comprehensive disciplines that regular participation in the communal life of a church provides you. You desperately need that. And of course, in advocating for this, the writer is really just advocating for something with roots that stretch back to Jesus himself. Because in Luke 4, Jesus is in his hometown. He's kind of launching his public ministry. And here's what we're told. This is Luke 4, verse 16. Just one verse, okay? Hone in. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Okay? And this little phrase right in the middle, right? And as was his custom is very, very important. Because it tells us that Jesus, the Messiah... The eternal son of God, the creator and sustainer of space and time, made a habit of going to church and saying his prayers and submitting to the regular life of an actual living, breathing community of faith. Jesus did that. And so if you don't do that, right, it kind of puts you in a bit of a difficult situation where you have to ask yourself, do you think you're better than JC? <laughs> right, like Jesus, Jesus, yeah, he needed that regular church stuff, but not me. I'm busy and I don't like people, you know, so it was good for Jesus, but it's not, it's not gonna work for me, right? And I just love this because many of us have been mistakenly led to think of Jesus as this, you know, like 
uh, a wild-eyed, anti-institutional, spiritual nomad who hated religion. He Jesus hated religion and just always did his own thing. And that could not be further from the truth. Because while Jesus was a wild-eyed prophet who constantly challenged the religious establishment, he was also a deeply religious person. A Torah-observant Jew who went to synagogue every Sunday and had the first five books of his Bible memorized because he spent so much time in Sunday school synagogue growing up. That's who Jesus was. One of the most religious people in the history of the world. Because while Jesus constantly exposed the hypocrisy of false religion, Jesus' remedy for false religion wasn't spirituality. No, Jesus' remedy for false religion was true religion, not spirituality. And so what exactly is true religion? Well, Jesus' brother James was good enough to tell us, right? This is James 1, 26 through 27. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, that person's religion is worthless. That's false religion. But pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's good religion. Did you know the Bible talks so positively about religion? There it is. And so let's start to try to kind of weave all this together. Um, When we say we're spiritual but not religious, I think we're trying to say something good and true. I think we're trying to say, hey, God is after our hearts, you know, And, and the chores of formal religious institutionalism can feel like an obstacle to that. Because, as, as we mentioned, you know, uh, religion without spirituality is dead, and that's true. But to come back to the point we mentioned earlier, while religion without spirituality is dead, spirituality without religion is dumb. And when I say it's dumb, I mean it's undisciplined. It is immature, and it is untrained. Right? If I can level with you, it's, it's you trying to make it up as you go. And I hate to break it to you, but you're not wise enough to make it up as you go. I know I'm not. No, you need to submit to the disciplines and rhythms of religion because following Jesus does not come very naturally for us. In fact, following Jesus comes very unnaturally to us, which is why we need the rules and um, values of religion. So to put it this way, religion is a set of beliefs and practices that are designed to unite people in a common faith and form them in proper worship and mission. This is what religion is. Just don't make up some negative definition. This is what religion actually is. And religion is built on the intuition that following Jesus does not come very naturally for us. Maybe it does for you, it doesn't for me. My friend Brian Zahn, he's a pastor up in Missouri, and here's how he puts it, I love this. He says, Jesus is God, Jesus created the church, and the church created the Christian religion. And so if you're here today and you have faith, you have the Christian religion to thank for your faith. You realize that? Period, without exception. Because it was the Christian religion that faithfully preserved the faith so it could get passed down to you 2,000 years later. And so, yeah, heck yeah, Christianity is a religion. It is a set of beliefs and practices that take shape in the actual life of an actual community. And so let's end with this. A few weeks ago, we talked about the tension between holiness and happiness. You remember that? Like, man, do I have to be really holy? Then I can't be happy, or I'll be really happy, then I won't be very holy. Uh, And we discussed how it's a tension that feels like it's pulling us apart but it's actually trying to pull us up, right? Turning us into people who are holy and happy instead of holy or happy, And I think the same thing applies here because if we want to follow Jesus well, then we have to be spiritual people. 
Because God is after our hearts and we have to reject all these false, stale, morose forms of religiosity. And so we gotta be spiritual. Of course we have to be spiritual, but we also have to be religious people. Meaning we have to submit ourselves to the life of an actual community where we are known and held accountable and constantly forced to do things that we would not choose on our own. This constantly makes me do things I would never want to do, and I'm so much better for it. All that to say, don't be spiritual or religious. That's child's play, man. That's for children. No, be spiritual and religious. Right? Don't be spiritual or religious. Be spiritual and religious because this tension between spirituality and religion, it's not a tension that's trying to pull you apart. It's not a binary choice you have to make. No, it's a tension that's trying to pull you up to turn you into somebody who is both free and deeply committed. You're freely, deeply committed to turn you into somebody who is open to the surprising work of the Spirit of God because you have been forged in the fire of disciplined Christian community. That's how you know to trust the Spirit. You've been forged in the fire of disciplined community. All right, so all that to say, man, on the way home today, you know, when you're going home today, roll down the window Crank up the music, and I have no doubt that a revival might break out in your car. Because a good song and a good drive is a powerful thing. Put on my church. Try not to smile. I dare you. So be spiritual, okay? Be spiritual. Absolutely be spiritual. But be religious, too. Become a member at a church. If that's not here, then find some other place that it can be. But wherever you are, you need to be here. You need to grow up, and you need to commit. You need to say your vows and just commit to a place. Be, be here for, for worship every Sunday that you're in town, not just when it fits in your schedule. You make it fit in your schedule. Become a part of a small group. Read your Bible. Say your prayers. Because why would you want to choose between being spiritual or religious when Jesus has very clearly asked you to be spiritual and religious? Because Jesus is after your heart. And religion, good religion, is how Jesus gets to it. It's how Jesus changes your heart. All right, let's pray together. Gracious God, we are all kind of prisoners of, of this moment in history where we feel a strong tug toward individualism and anti-institutionalism, and we have some good reasons for that. The church has really messed a lot of things up, and we confess that. We desire freedom, and, and we want to find our own way, and we desire living, vibrant faith. But please help us see that a living, vibrant faith is a product of a disciplined life so save us from ourselves and our desire to just make it up as we go because we're not wise enough to make it up as we go we need the rules and traditions and disciplines and hierarchies that Jesus himself passed on to us that Jesus himself submitted to
arguments about who's really in charge, then we're no longer talking about Christian leadership. <laughs> and so that said, I want to end with this. If you fall toward the, uh, the complementarian side of this issue, okay, and you feel like males and females are equal, but it's the role of men to spiritually lead churches and families, then you need to get really clear on what Christian leadership actually means. Because men... The Bible never tells you to lead your families and churches. Go looking for it. Get back to me in a few years. No, the Bible tells you to serve and love your families and your churches, not to lead them. And women, the Bible does not say that a man is supposed to be your priest, supposed to meet all of you and your family and your church's spiritual needs. No, we need everybody in the game. Everybody has a role to play. And so instead of sitting around being resentful that all the males around you aren't being good enough leaders, it's about you jump up and you lead. We all have a role to play here. And then if you fall to the more egalitarian side of this issue, and you believe that males and females are equally capable of leading churches and families, don't make the mistake of erasing all the differences between the sexes. And don't make the mistake of assuming that all hierarchy is bad. Don't shame men for their masculinity. And don't shame women for their femininity. And don't assume that all hierarchy is sinful oppression. It's not. A lot of it's really, really good. And it's for your good and for my good. And most of all, and for all of us, 
once leadership has really been defined by Jesus, then most of these conversations about who's really in charge just become very, very uninteresting. Because whether you're complementarian or complementary egalitarian, all we really want if we've been formed by Jesus is to love and serve each other for the glory of God and for the sake of the world. And once we understand that that's what we're talking about here, washing feet, we're arguing over who gets to wash the feet, not climb ladders, this whole conversation becomes very, very different. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Scripture tells us that you created us male and female, equal, similar, and complementary, and you asked us to multiply and fill the earth. And that seems simple, but things have become complicated for us. We got lots of questions about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. We live in a world that is infected with a deep hostility between the sexes, a world where men have dominated women. And so we ask that you would help us to receive the redeeming work of your new creation, a work in which there is no hostility or oppression between male and female. We ask that you would guide us along these confusing paths and help us to be very compassionate and gentle with each other as we travel. And Jesus, I pray especially for all of those among us for whom gender has been a source of hurt and confusion. And I ask you for wisdom that we might find our way forward together towards a deeper flourishing in Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're gonna give ourselves a few moments to respond. And what that means is a few moments to slow down. Don't run, go get your kids. They're fine, I promise. Don't think about lunch. Don't think about anything else. Just be here where your feet are and embrace the deeper work that God wants to do. One of the best ways you can respond is by what we call giving and receiving. Right? You come forward and receive communion. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. We've got tables at the side and up in the race sitting. And then with healthy receiving, there's also healthy giving. We've got gift boxes going out toward the exits there. We'd love for you to give. Maybe you want to stand and pray. Maybe you want to sit and sing. Maybe you want to talk to somebody. Maybe some things have been triggered for you in this conversation and you need somebody to process it with. We've got some people with lanyards on in front of the sound booth who would love to talk to you about that, about what it means to follow Jesus, whatever it is. And so respond however you want, but don't waste this moment because you're never going to get it back. And so let's respond together.